Our Father, we're thankful that in each moment of our lives, we can be kept aware of the fact that we are yours. And the point of the scripture is to not only teach us who you are, but how we are to live as followers of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you will strengthen us in our faith and in our commitment. We live in a day and age when commitment seems to be a past tense word in many lives. I pray, Lord, that that will not be true of us because your desire is to, is to have us committed to serving you each moment, even as you have committed yourself to us. Father, I pray that your word will be uh, strong in our hearts and minds today. It is the truth that speaks to our hearts and transforms us, and we trust you to do that, and that you will cause us to be clay that you can mold according to your good will. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this time we can share together. And I pray that your presence will be throughout this complex this morning as the word is being taught in several different locations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to begin this morning uh, by reading in Numbers chapter 25. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 25. I would like to read uh, verses 1 through 9, Numbers 25. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And the Lord was angry against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And, when, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague of the sons on the sons of Israel was checked, and those who died by the plague were 24,000. This chapter, the 25th chapter of Numbers, deals with a major sin in the life of Israel, the sin of the worship of Baal Peor. As I mentioned to you before, as we were approaching this particular uh, event, there are many forms of Baal. Baal or Baal uh, simply means Lord, and it referred to numerous varieties of fertility deities uh, who were primarily descended, if you, if you can go through a theogony of the gods here, uh, from Enlil of the Sumerians, Asher of the Assyrians. Uh, these were related deities from which Baal came mythologically. What we discover is that Balaam, about whom we read for a couple of three chapters there, had failed in his attempt to curse Israel, but he has successfully counseled the Midianites as to another means by which they might be able to subvert Israel, and that, of course, was to tempt Israel into spiritual adultery. The lure was physical adultery. And the Moabite women were using their sexual allurements 
to seduce Israel into the sensual worship of this fertility deity, Baal of Peor. Now, one of the most powerful statements of Scripture, and you find it in, in numerous passages throughout the Old Testament, is that idolatry is equated by God to spiritual adultery. And the antidote is death. Now, what we see in this passage is, is an example of this, because God commands Moses to order the judges of Israel to slay all of those men, leaders of the tribes, who have committed themselves to this worship of Baal Peor. And then on top of this, God allowed a plague or sent a plague in amongst the people of Israel in an attempt to drive the people back to himself. And it works. And, and that's the scene as we have to see it here. Moses and Eliezer are before the tabernacle and the congregation of Israel has gathered before the tabernacle and they are in mourning for their sin. They are weeping over their sin because 24,000 people are dead by this great plague that is swept through the camp. With that as the background, we look at verses 6 through 9 as we studied verses 1 through 5 last week. Verses 6 through 9 uh, this morning as I read them a moment ago. This is one of the strongest passages in Scripture. It portrays two opposites. Total depravity on one hand and total commitment to God on the other hand. Extreme opposites come through in this same passage of Scripture. We have this man. He is a clan leader within Simeon. And he has brazenly acquired a Midianite woman and he has paraded her into the camp and gone directly into his tent with her in broad daylight while Israel is mourning for their sin at the tabernacle. I don't know if you can get the picture. It's like having a revival service and then having somebody do this right in front of the whole church. That's the same kind of thing as that we're seeing here. As they say, total depravity. A man who doesn't give a concern at all of God or his own people. You look through all of Scripture and you will find many uh, opportunities or many examples where men have ba basically slapped God in the face, but you'll never find any more blatant than this, more brazen in all of Scripture. I mean, this is a clan chief. This isn't some little person out on the fringe someplace who, who considers himself an outcast. This is a leader within Israel. And what he is doing here is directly in front of the whole congregation challenging Moses' authority and beyond that he's challenging the authority of God Almighty himself. He did this at the very moment that Israel was in an act of repentance for this very sin on the part of numerous other members of the congregation. People were dying in judgment. 24,000 would die before this plague would be spent. And, and these people are pleading with God and confessing their sin, and this man is parading his sin in front of them all. This is a satanic act of great magnitude. And whenever a satanic act of this magnitude is performed, there will be a counter act of greater magnitude in honor of God. And if you love God, you've got to love Phineas. This is not a man of compromise. This is not a man who, well, he's saying, well, should I, should I not, you know, what will people think? No, no, no. He doesn't seem like to have a second thought beyond what he decides to do. 
He is the grandson of Aaron, therefore he is the grandnephew of Moses. And this man is about to bring great honor on this family. Now, what motivated his actions? Were his actions at all motivated by the fact that his grandfather had waffled many, many years ago in the deal, in the, in, in the whole uh, issue of the golden calf? Oh, I didn't do it. You know, they gave me this gold, and they put it in fire, and out came this golden calf. Right. Anybody who believes that, you know, will buy a bridge in the desert. Or was, was it because his two uncles had not too long ago been torched for bringing, burning incense wrongly uh, before God? We, we don't know whether his plan was to try to redeem the family name. I, I really, you know, whether that was somewhere, we don't know, but I don't think that was his prime motivation. I think his prime motivation was that he had within him this overwhelming desire to glorify God. There just welled up within him this, this godly nature, this godly character that was put there by God himself. It's not our human nature. Our, our natural nature is not to, to do the things of God, but to do the things of the flesh and the things of the world. But God had put in him this, this desire to glorify the name of the God of Israel and to do it as boldly as this man was dishonoring the name of God before all of the congregation. So this wasn't something he was going to do secretly, you know, sneak around in the middle of the night and go into the tent and, you know, stick him. He was going to do this right in front of everybody, just as boldly as this man had paraded this woman in front of everybody and taken her into his tent. What we read here is that Phineas marched right in after them. We have no evidence here that he was coached to do this by anyone. There is no evidence that Moses said, Phineas, stick it to him. Or that his father, Eliezer, had any point, part in this at all. No. He saw this couple disappear into the tent, and he stood to his feet in the fury of the Lord. And he went over, and the scripture says he picked up a spear. I don't know where this spear was, but apparently it was available. He picked up this spear, and in front of the entire congregation of Israel, he marched right into the tent. He didn't knock. He just burst into the tent here, and he took the spear, and, well, he killed both the man and the woman on the spot. Without any negotiation, without any pleading, he killed the two of them. And then he came out of the tent. What did the people of Israel do? Did they cheer? Well, there's no evidence that they did. I think they were stunned. <laughs> I mean, if you could just put yourself in that situation and, and think, what would you do? What would you think if you had witnessed this? They were in mourning for their sins, so their hearts should have been prepared to be grateful for what this man had done. But the, the rashness of it certainly stunned many. I mean, when you read through the Old Testament, you almost get the feeling like bloodshed was no big deal to these people. Oh, well, it was a big deal. <laughs> I mean, they didn't like murder and death any more than we do. In fact, maybe a little less than we do, since we pay money to go watch it on, in the movies on, on, you know, on television. Of course, we always remind ourselves that people aren't really dying, you know, just actors, right? But, but what we're seeing here, as you, as you read through the whole account of the Old Testament, is not a more bloody period of time. It certainly is not more bloody than the 20th century. You've probably heard it said, 
and apparently it's, it's well attested that more Christians have died in the 20th century than in all the previous 19 before, martyred for the, for the faith. And so we're not looking at, at a really a more bloody scene. Uh, we're looking at simply God dealing with people in a manner that will obviously make it clear that this is a serious thing. I mean, we're dealing with eternal truths here. And, you know, we, we have a tendency in our kind of uh, sophisticated way to think that the um, comfort of people is the most important thing. We don't want people to be uncomfortable. Well, God isn't particularly concerned about people's comfort. God is concerned about their eternal souls. And if he needs to make people uncomfortable in order to bring them to faith, he will do that. And I don't think we should stand in his way if that's what he chooses to do. We may not know how the people reacted, but I think it's clear from the scripture how God reacted to this whole thing. Because in the very verse that relates Phineas' bold action, it, we, we read at the end of that verse, So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked as the spear penetrated the bodies of these evil people, the plague was halted, not because of their death, but because of Phineas's bold, God-believing, God-defending action. Now, the plague had already taken 24,000 lives. Think, put, put that in contrast to two. These two have died. 24,000 have already died. God makes it clear that he was absolutely honored by Phineas's uncompromising action. And as we look at the next passage, we see what God will do and how, how this plays out, beginning at verse 10 of Numbers 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace, covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. I mean, he was a true priest. Phineas had displayed two attitudes here. First of all, he had displayed jealousy in defense of the name and the holiness of his God. Are we jealous for God? Are we tolerant? Oh, well, God will deal with it. Secondly, we discover that he displayed an attitude of great love for his people. I mean, he cared for his people to the extent that he was willing to slay two individuals for the sake of the greater multitude of his people. They were facing the wrath of God for this exact folly. They had been seduced sexually and then spiritually into worshiping Baal Peor. And as I have emphasized before, these fertility gods were worshipped with various forms of sexual perversion. Male and female prostitutes were almost always involved in the worship of these gods and goddesses. It was all knitted together. The Hebrew word that is used in this passage for jealousy can also be translated zealous. Phineas was so zealous for the reputation of his God, that he was willing to become the avenger. Now the scripture says, 
Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Has Phineas transgressed that? No, Phineas has become God's agent. Now that has to be carefully understood because there are lots of people historically who have claimed to be God's agent. I, I don't know how much you've studied medieval knighthood, but many times medieval knights rode out, you know, with a cross on, on their on their sword and a cross on their uniform and they went into battle and they fought others in the name of Jesus, they said. They had developed by this time a concept that Joshua, we're going to be getting to Joshua one of these days here, that, that Joshua, as he leads Israel into the land, went forward as a knight on, in shining armor and, and that he was the prototype of the medieval knight. Well, he's a bull. But that's what they taught because they wanted an excuse to do what they did, to murder in the name of Jesus. It's like the Crusaders going over there and, and without bothering to discover who these people are, cutting down people left and right who look foreign to them, whether they be Jew, Turk, or Christian. You have a hard time supporting that kind of activity from Scripture. It's a rare time when God will empower a person to be his avenger. It does occur in Scripture, but it's only very clear when that is true, and, and, and it is in this case. This man was not a, a willing bloodletter. He was a reluctant person. Yes, sir? Verse 4, it even has orders in verse 4 to go up and do that. So kind of seems like... Uh, yeah, right. In terms of the judges were to execute, right. Motivation was yeah. obedience. Right. Yeah, this is true. Uh, we, we sometimes don't recognize or, or fail to realize that many others had already been slain for the same activity. It's just that this man's activity was so brazen in front of the whole congregation that it had to be dealt with in this manner. Good point. What we discover here is that Phineas reflects God's nature in his jealous defense of what is supposed to be a faithful Israel. Israel is supposed to be the faithful bride of the Holy God, but Israel has been acting in an unfaithful manner. And so Phineas is trying to turn that around. He very well knew the second commandment, which God had given to Moses 39 years before this event wherein God had warned his people that in worshiping idols, they were provoking his jealousy because in that commandment he says of himself, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now we always think of the word jealousy in the context of some green-eyed person who's, you know, jealous about this other person who isn't paying close attention to them and maybe is playing, paying close attention to somebody else. What we're talking about here is a God who so loves his people that he will go to any extreme to keep them faithful to himself because if they're not faithful to themselves, they damn themselves forever. That's love. That's a jealousy that's born out of love, not out of self-pity and, and uh, you know, selfishness, which is usually the root of most human jealousy. God is not capable of, of any kind of a perverted form of emotion that we as humans are capable of. And so his jealousy is a pure jealousy. Idolatry is viewed by God as spiritual adultery, and it merits death. Thus Phineas took the role of the faithful husband. 
and he went out in the sight of God. And he went out and he slew these two individuals because they were demonstrating and exacerbating the harlotry of Israel, the spiritual harlotry of Israel. Because what we have to understand is when this man and this woman were, were going into this tent together, it wasn't just because they were fornicating in front of all of Israel. It's because they were demonstrating a flaunting of the worship of Baal Peor vis-a-vis uh, -vis Almighty God. So God honored him for his zealousness after God's own name. And verse 12, we read, that God said, Behold, I have given him my covenant of peace. Bereth shalom. Jesus will later say, My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. When God gives peace, that is ultimate peace. And that's the root meaning of the word shalom, wherever it is throughout Scripture. The root meaning is absolute, total well-being, because all is well. As the song goes, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. No matter if the storm clouds roll and the billows are all around, the waves are high. My four daughters have drowned in the Atlantic Ocean as, spontane as you know, stimulated that, that hymn by the author. It is well with my soul. That's the real meaning of shalom. And that's the word that is used here. And he goes on to, to further define that in verse 13, saying that it is a covenant of perpetual priesthood. This man has demonstrated what it means to be a priest, to stand in the stead of his people, to exalt his God, to bring atonement for his people. That's what a priest is to do. And that's what he was demonstrating so powerfully here in front of all of Israel. I mean, you had to be totally ignorant spiritually to not see, I'm talking about the people who were there witnessing this whole thing, to not see what the meaning of this was, to understand its eternal importance. Ronald Allen in his commentary on this book says, as in the Lord's covenant with Abram, this covenant is God's doing. It involves his seed and it is lasting. In the case of Abram, God chose him first. Then by Abram's action of faith, God confirmed his covenant with him. In the case of Phineas, he was already chosen by God too. But in his action, God's covenant with him was confirmed. He showed himself to be the rightful priest by his interest in divine righteousness. He is now confirmed priest by the right of divine covenant. Well, we find from this passage is that Phineas's action here was in effect a sacrifice. His bold action was a sacrifice to his God. Not the people who died, their blood was worthless. But his action in doing this was a sacrifice. Because we read at the end of verse 13 that his action made atonement for the sons of Israel. Spearing two people to death made atonement for the sons of Israel. You may remember in our study a while back in Numbers chapter 16 that when Israel decided to blame Moses and Aaron for the death of Korah and the 250 who were bringing their incense to burn for the Lord because they were challenging Moses and Aaron as the leaders of Israel, that when God destroyed those 250, the, the 
people came and they blamed Moses and Aaron. And God was so ticked that God began to, to destroy them. God basically said, stand away, Moses and Aaron. I'll, I'll burn a lot of them and I'll start all over again. And Moses commanded Aaron to burn incense before the Lord. And it says in that passage, to make atonement for the sin of the people. And God did not destroy Israel. And that is exactly what Phineas has done here. His zealous act was accepted by God as atonement for Israel's sin. Verse 14. Now the name of the slain man of Israel who was slain with a Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of his father's household among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was head of the people of a father's household in Midian. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Be hostile to, Midian, to the Midianites and strike them, for they have been hostile to you with their tricks, with which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor and in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. The Midianites have been trouble in the past. The Midianites will be trouble in the future. The Midianites will pay the price. This effort on the part of the Midianites to subvert Israel, no matter who was their teacher, no matter who was instigating it, who was Satan, they were still responsible. And that's a truth we find over and over again in Scripture. God may use the Assyrian nation to punish a, an Israel that is walking in sin, but God holds Assyria responsible. He may use them, but they're responsible for their own attitude and their own reaction to God. If they were to do this as Phineas had done this, then they would be uh, uh, obviously uh, doing right in the sight of God, but they don't. They do it in the name of their gods, and, and they go forth to destroy for their own pleasure and, and to build their own wealth. God is not part of their concern at all. And therefore, God not only uses Assyria to punish Israel, then God punishes Assyria. The Midianites are allowed by God to tempt Israel, but the Midianites are responsible for trying to subvert the people of God. And they had ample reason to know that these were the people of God because their leaders had heard the words of Balaam as he had been forced to bless Israel rather than curse Israel, and they had heard and seen the power of God Almighty, and yet they are willing to go ahead and do this. Exhibits, of course, their folly. And so God orders Israel to attack Midian. Now that attack and its results are described later in Numbers in chapter 31. We won't jump to that chapter at this point. But suffice it to say, they will be badly decimated. But they will survive as a nation and they will give Israel more trouble at a later date. Is that, does that remind you of, of problems you may come face to face with, you know? You're faced with a satanic attack and God gives you victory. Does that mean it's all over, folks? I have had victory and I'm going forth now to everlasting peace. Well, maybe on your deathbed, but not before. Because he'll come back again. And uh, next time the giant will be taller, maybe. But your God will be greater. Did it really matter to David how tall Goliath was? Or really, because God was directing the stone. In the 26th chapter of Numbers... We have an account of the second census of Israel. The first census had been taken 38 years prior, before the whole wilderness wandering. 
Now they're poised for the conquest of Canaan. They're ready to begin what they've been wanting to do for 40 years. They're now going to be allowed to do what they should have done 38 years before when they stood at Kadesh Barnea and God said, go into the land. They said, no, it's too, the walls are too high. The people are too big. We can't do it. And God said, fine, you just all die out here now and I'll take the next generation in from a different point. And, and that's where we're at. And so God is now taking another census. He has ordered Moses to take another census. So why? What is the purpose of this census? Just to find out how many people there are? God knew. And did Moses need to know? The purpose was so that there would be fair land distribution as they entered the land and as they conquered the territory and the land was to be given tribe by tribe and clan by clan and family by family. The point was to make it fair so that every family would have what was due to that particular family. What is interesting here is to compare this census with the earlier one in terms of totals. If you read through this chapter, you'll discover that the total number of males from 20 years old and older at this second census is only 1,800 smaller than the original census had been 38 years before, before 600,000 died in the wilderness, which tells you that God's blessing was still on Israel and they were still multiplying and they were still growing as a tribe, as a nation. And so the wilderness hadn't been quite so hard on them as some might think. Oh yeah, it was still dry, it was hot, there was times when they had trouble with water and food, but God was there to be their supply. And as they're poised to go into the land, their numbers were basically as strong as they had been before. We're not going to read this chapter. You can read it if you want to. It's a list of names and a list of numbers. But I'd like to turn to the end of this chapter, and that is to verse 63, because as you turn to this particular passage, you, you find an important truth re-emphasized here. Numbers 26, 63. These are those who were numbered by Moses and Eliezer the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest, who numbered the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai, for the Lord had said of them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. And not a man was left of them except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. They're on the plain of Moab, which is a small flat land at the head of the Dead Sea on the northeast side of the Dead Sea at, at its upper end, where the Jordan River dumps into the Dead Sea. And across the river from the plain of Moab, they could see the walls of Jericho. Jericho was just a few miles away, within sight of them, on the other side of the river. All that stood between them and Jericho was the river. But of course, one other thing stood between them and Jericho, and that was the will of God. It was not God's time yet for them to cross the Jordan and to attack, uh, to attack Jericho. But what you see here in, in this passage of Scripture is that God had promised, God had in effect cursed Israel to the degree that those who were of 20 years of age and older at the time of the refusal to enter the land from Kadesh Barnea, 
38 years before, that they would all die out in the wilderness and not a single one of them would be there to go into the land of Canaan except two men. And what this passage of Scripture is saying, that exactly according to the promise of God, so it had been carried out. There wasn't like, you know, 600,000 were supposed to die and only 580,000, there were 20,000 of them still hanging around. No, no, no. They were all dead, except Joshua and Caleb. The two that God had accepted would enter the land, which means that God carried out his purpose on the 600,000 and through it all, God could preserve Joshua and Caleb. Now, can you imagine Satan? I got to get Joshua. I got to get Caleb. Somehow I got to kill one of those guys or both of them. And then God's word will not come true. They lived a charmed life, whether they knew it or not. You know, there wasn't any way they could die. Because God had said they wouldn't. They could have bungee jumped or skydived or anything they wanted to. And they would have been secure. <laughs> They'd have been fools, of course, and God wouldn't have <laughs> chosen them in the first place if they had done that. But, um, but God had said they would go in, and they will go in. Joshua will be the leader, and Caleb will be the mighty man who will stand there and say, Give me that mountain, the strongest stronghold in all of Israel. He says, Give me that mountain, and he will take it. And, you know, the guy is an octogenarian, mighty man. As we move into the 27th chapter of Numbers, we're going to be looking at a chapter in which two important events are highlighted. The first is the establishment of an equitable law of inheritance for the land. And the second is the transfer of the mantle of authority from Moses to Joshua. I mean, you know, Moses has a pretty good idea, probably that Joshua, since he was on the Mount Sinai with him 40 years before, 39 years before, and Joshua had been groomed all the way along, he pretty, he pretty much had a good idea that Joshua would be his successor, but he wanted to know for sure from God Almighty. Of course, Moses would like to have gone in the land himself, but that wasn't going to happen. But one of the problems that Israel faced was how to distribute the land fairly. They were going to walk into a country and take over. It was going to be a turnkey country. All the orchards were in, the vine vineyards were in, the fields were plowed, the cities were built, the, uh, you know, whatever irrigation systems were there. I mean, everything was ready. They were going to walk in and take over. But who should get what? This is the big question. And so God is dealing with that in this uh, first passage. Let me read the first five verses of Numbers 27. Then the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, came near. And these are the names of his daughters. Mala, Noah, even in, some, you know, even in earlier days sometimes women were given men's names. Hogla, and Milcah, and Tirzah. Notice they all end with ah. <laughs> And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the leaders and all the congre congregation at the doorway of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, yet he was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died in his own sin and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be withdrawn from among his family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. And Moses brought their case before the Lord. Land allotment 
and inheritance in Israel was through the male line. That being true, the five daughters of Zelophehad had a problem. And they were threatened with no possession in the land. They would go in and they would be, you know, landless, literally. And, you know, for us today, who live in modern American society, home ownership is, is our dream and, and, and most of us probably have realized that. But there are many, many Americans who do not ever realize that in their lives and, and they rent for, for all of their lives and they get along okay. But if you go back into ancient history, you discover that land ownership was everything. That's why it's called real estate. What is real in life was land ownership. If you didn't possess land, you didn't have anything. You were nobody. You were disenfranchised. You had no power. Uh, you had no clout in society. You were a nobody if you didn't possess any land. If you worked for someone else, you were considered to be in the lowest economic, social, political level of that society. And, and that was true then, and it would be true for most of history. And so for these ladies, it was a very, very serious concern. And what we may not see here is that these were very brave women. Because if you'll notice the scene, they marched through the camp to the front of the tabernacle in the presence of the austere Moses, the high priest Eliezer, all the leaders of the clans, and the whole congregation. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like center stage, ladies. And that's exactly where they went. And they went there with the conviction that their cause was right and that their God was just. That's why they went. Now, if they had been in a different society where gods were capricious, it would have been a dangerous thing to do. But the God of Israel is definitely not capricious. Their case, of course, was that their father had died amongst the 600,000 that were to die in the wilderness simply because they were 20 and older and had not been willing to go into the land at Kadesh Barnea. And they are not arguing that that was wrong. They say, in effect, that he died in his own sin, meaning that he had been part of that rebellion. Whatever had been his case later, whether he had repented, we, we have no idea. That isn't the point. But they do say that he was not one who died, though, in the special rebellion of Korah. Now, I don't think they would have brought that up if there hadn't been some special meaning to that. And I think that what this implies is that those who had died in the rebellion of Korah had forfeited their right of inheritance in the land in terms of their direct descendants and those who would bring their name in. I don't think that their surviving relatives were necessarily uh, disinherited from land possession, but it meant that land possession would not be done in their name. Their name would be blotted from the books as far as possession of the land was concerned. Now for you and for me, whether my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather possess the same piece of property or not isn't of great importance to us today. Well, I mean maybe to some people, but in our society that's not a big deal. But in the society we're talking about it is a big deal. They didn't worship their ancestors, but they had a sense of continuity. They had a sense of generations passing through as the people of God, expressing the plan of God and marching on into the eternal purposes of God, which is what the church does today. And so to perpetuate the name of their father, their grandfather, was very important to them. 
And that's why disinheritance of these rebels under Kara was a great blow to those families and a worthy blow, actually. Now, the father of these five women had died like all of the other fathers of others who would be receiving inheritances in the name of their father's line. And they felt it wouldn't be fair if their father's name disappeared amongst the names of the clans of the tribe of Manasseh just because he had no son to perpetuate his name and to inherit the land. These ladies are exhibiting faith in God in two ways for sure here. One is that they actually are believing that this land is going to be possessed and that God is going to give them the land for them to inherit. And secondly, that God understood the justness of their claim and would have mercy upon them and their father. You see, it means they understood something of the character of God which is the purpose of all the teaching that Moses had been doing and of setting up the whole sacrificial system, the whole sacerdotal system. The whole purpose of it was so that every person in Israel would know the attributes and character of God. And they're expressing belief in that, that they understand that this is a just God who cares for all people, including them. Now, it's possible here, because of the fact that their father was of the tribe of Manasseh, that they're actually dealing with a, a reality that's already come into existence and not a future one, because you remember that when they captured Gilead, Gilead was turned over to Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. So those, that two and a half tribes had already been given their inheritance. So if this man had belonged to that half of Manasseh, we could be talking about a situation in which the land had already been distributed and they had been left out. But if he belonged to the other half, then we're talking about a future situation. Uh, it's, it's hard to tell here. I kind of go with the future one because if it already has been all distributed, it's going to be pretty tough to say, all right, then let's see, we've got to give these ladies some land. Where are we going to get it? You know, a little bit from you, a little bit from you, a little bit from you. That would be a little more hard, but whatever. God works it out. This case is very important because it just demonstrates that whatever are the cultural biases, God is no respecter of persons. And God cares as much for these daughters of Zelophehad as he does for any son of Israel. God doesn't break up his people into daughters and sons and bless the sons and say, well, I'll tolerate the daughters. No. To, to God, all are equal, and he loves them equally, and he wants to provide for them according to his great love. Moses saw the difficulty of the situation, but Moses had no precedent to follow. Nobody had ever asked this question before. He hadn't run into this problem before. And we have to realize Moses was not clairvoyant. He couldn't see into the future in terms of these problems and how he worked them out in his mind. And so he does what any person who is faced with a situation ought to do. In verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord. If you can't solve the problem, take it before the supreme arbitrator of the universe. He will do what's right. Moses becomes such a powerful example to us. We've seen this over and over and over again in his life. Why do we have so much about Moses? Why are we even studying him? Because he is it's a wonderful example to us. He is human. In so many ways, we see him as human. 
and yet he is moved by God to do the right thing in most situations. Not that God ever moved him to do the wrong thing, but sometimes he chose to do the wrong thing. But in this case, we see he went to the Lord. And as you read this, it brought to my mind uh, the passage, which is so often quoted, but I'm going to read it again, that I have there on the outline from James chapter 1. And this, this passage is worth repeating. It's worth learning if we don't already know it. Because sometimes we're in a quandary and we hit our head against the wall instead of doing what this verse says. It says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously. That is men in the generic term. It's not a sexist term. To all people generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This passage gives us a clear direction as to what to do if we don't know what to do. That is, go to God. Ask Him for wisdom. And He wants to give it. He wants to give it to us. And He will give it to us. Well, I have several things I want to say about that, and I don't want to just poof over them. So uh, I think I'll stop right here and uh, pick this up on next Sunday so that we can take a couple of minutes anyway and understand the importance of this passage of Scripture to us today and how it applies in our lives.